This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. This is Knowledge at Wharton, and you're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. About a year and a half ago, doctors at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia performed a surgery on a pair of conjoined twins. The surgery on Abby and Aaron Delaney was the 24th such procedure at the hospital right near us here at the University of Pennsylvania. Several months later, the twins are doing well, and Aaron and Abby are back home with their parents in North Carolina. What is also unique uh, about this particular procedure uh, is partly the timing of it. Doctors say that conjoined twins heal better and faster the sooner that a procedure is done. The other element of this procedure, which is very interesting, was the fact that 3D printing was used as part of the process. To say the least, it's quite of an experience for all of the medical professionals involved, two of which join us here in our studio today, and they will be part of the TEDx Penn event coming up this weekend. Dr. Gregory Hoyer is an attending neurosurgeon uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Dr. Allison Parade is an anesthesiologist at CHOP, or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as well. And as I mentioned, they'll be discussing this in part of the speech being given at the TEDx Penn event coming up in just a few days here at the University of Pennsylvania. Nice meeting you both. Thank you for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let's start, I guess, with the history of these types of procedures. I mentioned it's the 24th that was done uh, back yeah, then. Um, How far back does this go? So it's the 24th conjoined twins. So kids can be conjoined in different parts of their body, um, more commonly in the thorax or in the abdomen. And that's a, a little bit more common uh, type operation. Um, this is the first time at CHOP that we've separated kids that were attached by the head. That's called cranial pagus. And so these ten kids were attached by the head, they're attached by the blood vessels in the head, and they're also attached by in the brain. So it adds a whole increased level of complexity. In the past, the, these have been tried to been separated, twins have been tried to uh, separated, and invariably the twins suffer damage to the brain, or, yeah. one, or one twin can even, in the majority of the cases, can, can die. So... We sort of tried to take a, a little bit of a different approach to see if we could get the best outcome possible and really include all the, the big theme of the TED Talk that we're going to give is the essence of sort of teamwork, of everyone being brought in to discuss the separation, not each of their parts, but how each part interact and, and fit together. These procedures, obviously, they, they are, are phenomenal when you think about what you're trying to do uh, in that period of time. Uh, in terms of the element of 3D printing, how did that come into play into this type of a procedure to begin with? So the, the, the idea behind 3D printing came in, we do similar kind of procedures for other kids to fix deformities in their head or abnormalities of the skull. So we were trying to adapt things that we've learned in those settings and things that we do together, Dr. Taylor and I and Dr. Parade. Um, and try to adapt them to this situation. So the way 3D printing worked for these twins, it worked in sort of two ways. One, we used the 3D printing to develop a model so that we could look through their heads yeah. and position them in the OR, know how they were going to be um, set, and know where the blood vessels were, where the danger was underneath. The other reason, way we used 3D printing is we developed two devices to sort of slowly push the twins apart before we separated them to make that surgery easier. 
And the 3D printing allowed us to make a, you've all seen halos in patients who have a broken neck, for sure. instance. Yeah. So in this case, we made a plastic halo-like device that would slowly push the twins apart to give us more access to, to separate them easier. And from our standpoint, from anesthesia, the one of the critical time points for us is being able to anesthetize them initially and get breathing tubes in them. Um, a lot of that has to do with the geometry of just how their heads lie on the table, but right. more importantly, being able to manipulate their heads and necks um, that we were unable to do with just two dolls taped together, which we commonly do for other areas of the body. So the 3D printing for us, as the twins grew especially, allowed us to, each time we were about to take them down for anesthesia, to do a, a dry run-through in the OR to make sure everything was going to be as safe as it could possibly be and try to identify any roadblocks that we would hit before we actually put them to sleep. Because once they are asleep, our hands are tied and we have to go forward. There's no going back. Well, what is that process in terms of, I mean, obviously, I think anybody that has been through a surgical procedure understands that anesthesia, uh, anesthesia is involved in some point. But how is that changed when you have two individuals that you're working with and in most cases, very young individuals to boot. Right. Um, well, this was complicated by the fact that they did share blood supply in their brain. So we were always concerned that if we would give drugs to one child, how would that affect the other one? Uh, most commonly, we use paralyzing agents, and we, that which prevent the patient from breathing at all on their own. And that facilitates us putting breathing tubes in. So our concern was if we gave paralyzing agent to one child, would the other one then stop breathing? Because once the child stops breathing, you have a matter of seconds to get a breathing tube in before there's brain damage from lack of oxygen. So first what we would do is put masks to make sure we were able to breathe for them. Right. And then we test-dosed drug, test um, drugs that did not have such dire effects as a paralyzing agent to see what would happen in the other twin. Things that would do things like raise their heart rate, lower their heart rate, and to see if we gave it to twin A, did twin B have a response? And surprisingly, there wasn't much response um, which gave us more time than after we brought them in and gave them the medications to put them to sleep and paralyze them and get those tubes in. The process o overall uh, of doing a a separation takes how long? And and I guess I've read that it can it can take multiple surgeries to be able to do this as well. And and this one did too. It took a, a, a couple different operations, and we even had the last operation, which was around eleven hours, planned to be in two parts, but we went ahead with it for reasons in the operating room. I think what Dr. Parate just highlighted um, is one of the sort of things we've learned from this case that I carry forward is the teamwork that we used in the operating room is almost not vocalized. We know what each other are doing. Right. If my daughter needed anesthesia, I would call Dr. Parate and have her put my daughter to sleep. I know what she's doing. I know that she knows if I say I'm getting blood loss, how much blood loss is that? We can do, we can, we've worked, so from a teamwork standpoint, you can't decide the first day I'm going to separate conjoined twins right. in a team that doesn't already work together. Our team works together, we know, and because we did sort of small operations leading up to the big operation, we knew how these twins acted in the operating room. We knew how they responded to medication. We knew how hard it was to intubate them and how hard it was to position them. So I think... From a teamwork standpoint, you can't invent a teamwork for a big project like this. It would be like building a skyscraper but have never worked together. You know, you need to have that working together. And we do small parts of this operation on other children, so we're able to adapt that. So how, ma how many procedures have your, has your team done now in doing conjoined twins or 
you know, whether it be through the head or other body so, parts. So this is the first conjoined twin we've separated at CHOP, but we do craniofacial work three or four times a week. Uh, we operate on tumors three or four times a week. Right. We do complex surgery like that on a regular basis. Not just us, but remember, there's a nursing staff. There's sure. a nursing in the OR. There's people who bring instruments to both of us that just are have as their regular routine this process so it doesn't become as heightened as it is. Um, one thing that Dr. Parade, I think, spoke about really well is we have two twins here. Usually when we're doing an operation, we have one baby and we're trying to remove something from that baby or fix right. something on the baby. Right. In this side, every time I did something to the twin on the left, it affected the twin on the right. And that included medicines, blood pressure medicines, um, how we separated them. And so that added a level of complexity that I didn't think about actually until <laughs> We were, it was in front of us and we had to treat them. It was a, it was a much different up, uh, approach. And if you want to go all the way back, uh, Dr. Hoare and I actually trained together, so we've been working for many years together. Um, but as he said, the, the key takeaway part is I, I'm an expert at what I do. I'm an expert in pediatric anesthesia. Yeah. Dr. Hoare is an expert in pediatric neurosurgery, and we have expert nursing and tech staff support. But each of us have to learn the pieces and how those intertwine together as a puzzle because I can't perform anesthesia in a vacuum. He can't perform neurosurgery in, in a vacuum. And each of the moving pieces of the cog, you can plan as much as you want on paper, but until you lay a 3D image in front of yourself and actually work through each step in the process, you, don't, you, you would be surprised how many little teeny things or major roadblocks that you can pick out very much ahead of time by doing so. But there, there's also the timing element as well, because... You know, it's it's following that pattern of A, B, C, D. Something may start with, with Dr. Hoyer first, and then you have to go in as the second priest or vice versa. So there's a timing element right. that well, plays that, into that, this as that well. That came out even more with uh, the interaction between myself and Dr. Taylor, who's the plastic surgeon involved in the case. After we I separate the brains, we have to do that in the right way so that he could reconstruct the skin sure. and the dura afterwards. So in the past, that's usually just been uh, someone separates the brain and then, oh, come in here and fix this. Right. For these twins, they were born at CHOP. Um, the CHOP has a fetal center, and we take care of kids. We actually deliver kids there. Right. So we knew these kids even before they were born, and we're developing a plan with the parents, with the anesthesia doctors, with the nursing, with everyone, so that we knew at each step what the step was going to be six months from that point. So we try to do it in a sort of logical timeline. And so that, that's the other piece of teamwork that you, you know, astutely uh, noticed is that if I do something, the effect on someone else, so why not get them involved at that first step? Right. Now, you brought with you, uh, and for the people listening on radio, you can't see it, but you brought with you a 3D printing of two heads that have been conjoined in terms of the production of such uh, uh, an item, what is the process that you have to go through, the time element uh, in terms of the actual production of it, in advance of obviously the surgery so that you can look at it and see what the elements are that, that you need to be aware of going into a procedure like this? That's a great point. There is a process. So these are showing the two skulls of the twins connected and the gaps that are in the bone. But more importantly, it's showing the blood vessels underneath them and how interconnected they are. So it helped me to be able to make a, a, a location of where I needed to make that separation, the blood vessels. The reason this is another part of the teamwork is in order to have this printed, these twins needed to have three different scans, of MRI, a CAT scan, some other studies done, 
again, they needed anesthesia for that. They needed to be intubated for that yeah. so that they were still. And then we have partners in industry at um, who who help build distracting devices for us when we're doing skull surgery and devices to put the skull back on. Okay. And they have a 3D printer there, and they were able to 3D print this and our distracting devices for us. And they actually went through several iterations with us. We tried them on the twins. We saw how they fit. We had prototypes. And we ha because we were able to plan that, uh, months, weeks ahead of time, we were able to get these done. But these are... This is the one case where 3D printing that I've used it actually did change the way I positioned the twins and what surgery I did in the operating room, and re were really very useful. So now, how how did that particular build out of their heads impact Allison? What you were doing on the anesthesia side? So we actually printed much uh, less complex models earlier on that were um, e more easily printed, so it would take a day or so to print. These type of model takes a little bit longer to do. Right. Um, and each time we'd bring the ch children down, as they grew, would change how we had to hold things on their, their masks on their face, the geometry of the angles of putting the breathing tubes in. Um, and like Dr. Hoyer printed out, it, it was absolutely crucial in understanding how the twins moved. It also helped us adapt better the day of surgery, because as Dr. Hoyer pointed out, um, every time he did something to one twin, it would affect the other one. Right. And that was much more easily seen when we did our dry run-throughs with them, holding their holding the things and visualizing how we were going to actually move them afterwards. You, you have to envision, in the OR, what we're seeing here, which is two heads connected, or as you picture the twins when they're connected, we don't see that. We just have a window that we have draped out. We put Correct. drapes yeah. around. Yeah. So in order to, we had these in the operating room in order to be able to see through that, and we use some other technology as well. Um, you only see a window, and you can get very what's called coned down and just see that part. And being able to look over there and say, oh, that's what they look like underneath as well, helped to make the surgery safer. One sort of funny thing that talks about the teamwork, Dr. Parade put color on each twin. So there was a purple twin, I think. <laughs> and a pink twin. And a pink twin. And everything, tubing, anesthesia machines, people on their hats had the different coloring. What a simple thing to think of, but yeah. it was it was so important because when drugs get brought in for the pink twin, um, they need to be given to the pink twin and not right. to the red twin because they, had, they reacted differently to these medications. So all that kind of stuff is, it, it sounds simple, but it, it made the hard stuff easier because the simple stuff was taken care of. When you have something like that, the, 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 and, it, and again, this is going to attention to detail in, in the process, but again, something like what just Greg, Greg Dr. Hoyer just said, you know, having the, the, the thought process in thinking out everything that you would have to do as an anesthesiologist and understanding that you need to have to a degree that separation of pink and purple so that there is no crossover and there's potentially no issues with, with either one of the twins. Well, part of the problem is seeing them as two patients, not one. They come in as one body and there's a tendency for you to see them as one patient. Right. But anyone who enters the OR gets the full attention of one full staff. So to ensure that that would happen, we clearly delineated our teams so that each child got their own staff as they would if they were coming in as an individual baby. Right. Just to minimize chaos in case you know we needed to get call for emergency help, everyone knew who, which team each person was on. So now it seems well, like... But would, one thing, just to correct yeah. what you said, we didn't anticipate everything. Okay. We anticipated what we could, which then allowed us to, to act on our feet. It, 
we know what we're doing, mm-hmm. but the twins always, every patient can give you a little bit of a curveball. Sure. So yeah. one twin, for some reason, when we gave her blood, the other twin's hemoglobin went up, and, and it didn't happen the other way around. So you have to sort of adapt to their biology because they're, they're, and when I got in there, the, the, even though the scans looked like the brains were separated, they weren't. There was a, a connection between them. So you have to sort of react. So I think what more importantly is that we tried to control the things we could so sure. that we would be able to be able to react to the things that we couldn't control. So it's, it appears in looking at a variety of articles about this now that this is really, in terms of using 3D printing, is the way that almost all of these types of situations with conjoined twins are being approached, especially when you're talking about being conjoined at the head so that you can see all of the, the elements of each child's head as you're going through that process. And as you said, you're looking at a window with the area being draped around it, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I think the 3D printing would be a useful um, in any kind of endeavor where we're trying to look through and sort of see what's going on underneath there. Um, I think the one caveat with this is that because the connections aren't always the same, each twin's going to come with their own, sure. a set of twins yeah. is going to come with their own um, problem. And this is super rare. I was looking at the, this is less than one in a million births. Um, so I looked at these numbers for the talk and being struck by an asteroid is more common than, than being, than, than having conjoined twins. So these are rare operations, but each physic, physical little part of it is something that we do. And so it was just about bringing them together. Allison? And we, 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 have, we see a biased population here. I mean, I feel like it's much more than one in a million here because we draw a bunch of of these cases to us with our special delivery unit yeah. and with our um, world expertise on the subject. So we, we do a fair amount. It's it's not uncommon for us, to, not the craniopagus twins, but it's not uncommon for us to do conjoined twins, which again, each set you do, you get a little bit better. You can, you can predict a little bit more what the issues will be. Right. And like Greg said, be able to react to the things you couldn't predict because now all the other things were taken care of. Yeah, that's a good point because... The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is used to taking care of complex kids, the, the nursing staff, the hospital, sure. um, the, the leadership, Dr. Adzik, the, the, the fetal the teams. They're used to taking care of these kids. So one of the nice things about, from a family standpoint, having a daughter myself and Allison has uh, own kids, is that these kids are just treated as kids there. Even kids with, who are conjoined at the head were just treated as Abby and Aaron. They weren't treated as some you know unique kid in room 12. Right. They, were just, they were just babies. And that's the sort of atmosphere you get at CHOP because we're used to taking care of pretty complex kids. Which is a shift in, in terms of the medical industry because if memory serves me, and we, if you go back 20, 25 years, it was, you know, baby X, baby Y right. in terms of, I guess, to a degree, protecting their their person, uh, their personalities and not letting that information getting out. But you're talking about having that connection with these kids, but it also goes to having the connection with the parents as well, which obviously has to be a very vital part of what you're doing in terms of these procedures. Well, they absolutely, I, I hope, felt more comfortable seeing familiar faces each time so it wasn't a different team every time they would have to hand their children over. There is nothing more gut-wrenching than handing your child to basically strangers yeah. um, for them to do something of this magnitude. So I hope that with uh, Dr. Hoy and I keeping the teams relatively constant the entire time, it's it's a friend by the end. By the time we actually took these children for separation, that was the probably the tenth or twelfth time I'd spoken with those parents um, over the course of their life, and they did feel a lot more comfortable. What co- what connection do you have do you have or do you have to have with the family now? Post you know they're home, they're with their parents. You know, do you have to? 
you know, are there checkups with with your with your yeah. group at Chop over over the over the period of time? Definitely, they they, they still have some operations left because their skulls still have a, a missing bone in there. Okay, and so Dr. Taylor and I will have to bring them back to the operating room this time as separate babies, um, and reconstruct some of that tissue in, in their bone. We have a lot of contact with them. The, the, she um, emailed me um, pictures, videos. Um, you get pretty. Uh, it's hard because you get close to a family that you're you're treating, and then it becomes even more. I'm mean, I'm kind of an emotional guy already as it is. So, <laughs> um, so when I was done, I was like extra exhausted um, with the with the particular case. But yeah, they we see them back. Um, Abby got a cold and uh, was back in the hospital. Her mom texted me. Um, that she was back in the hospital, if, you know, a few months ago. Is this anything I need to worry about? And so, um, but you know, that's nice that she has that level of connection because that means that we did the right thing. Going back to to the three D printing for a second. So, I mean, obviously, as you said, each child in this process is different. Whether it be the twins that you actually you know did work on with with Abby and Aaron, uh, or if it is the next set of, of twins that you're working on. So you would go through a process of building out a new 3D print for each time you were doing a procedure on different on different twins. Even on Abby and Aaron, we had uh, multiple sets of, of 3D print models okay. um, because they're, they're, one of the goals of our initial surgery was to align them better. So initially they were facing more on each of their, of their foreheads. Right. And that's a more dangerous operation to separate them. So what we did with our initial operations was mostly with the distracting was move them so that they were more head-to-head. We call it stovepipe, if you can think of, of a pipe uh, on, on the stove. And that makes it safer to do the, the next operation. So, But they had different anatomy then, so we needed to do a new 3D printing. And now, because it's so readily available, it can be done cheaply and, and, and sort of fast. I think that's a bad thing, too, though. Because sometimes people are 3D printing things that it doesn't add any benefit at all right. to the case. And, and then it doesn't make sense. But is this the pattern in terms of, of when you have a, a case where you have conjoined twins that with the facilities that you have at, at CHOP, that you can have these families come to CHOP, come to the hospital prior to birth, and then they are staying there. It's all one continuous process instead of giving birth at a hospital, in this case in North Carolina, and then the family and the... Uh, and the children being flown up to Philadelphia for the process. Well, the benefit of our special delivery unit is that mom can stay in the same hospital as a baby. So in any other hospital, um, when the baby is shipped off to a level of care such as CHOP, the mom is still hospitalized from her delivery for a day or so. Right. The benefit of the, the, special de- the special delivery unit is not just the fact that you get world-class care, but that you keep the families together. Yeah. Um, so again, minimizing stress, you know, again, encouraging teamwork that we talk to the people on the special delivery unit, we're in constant com- communication with them. Everyone knows what's going in. When the moms come in in labor, or even if they come in and they need to be delivered for other reasons, we're already aware. And our OR team is on alert. We have, yeah. you know, everything ready to go. That doesn't happen if you go to other hospitals where the team that's going to be receiving baby is at a different facility. And I think one other thing that, to talk about, we, we focus so much on the surgeries because that's the, you know, a dazzling part of, right. of the operation and the treatment. I think information is treatment as well. So in talking to the mom and, and dad before the babies were even born, in showing them the 3D models, this is that blood vessel that we need to, to open up. Sure. I think that level of that increased um, amount of information is also a form of treatment. Um, it's telling them what, and they knew full ahead of the case, how dangerous it was, and right. how 
they could lose one of the babies, but they went ahead because they wanted to give them the best chance at having the best. But it is something different when the parents can actually sit there and see the model and and you can point to, okay, here's the blood vessel, here's what we need to do in this spot, bing, and, and it keeps them as part of the process instead of being the parents, as you mentioned, Allison, of giving your children over, and then the parents have to go sit in the waiting room for several hours waiting for something to actually happen. I agree. It's, it's like they, and not knowing, you know, it's a black box in there, what's going on, and now yeah. they know, boy, I wonder if they're on that blood vessel right now, is that what they're operating on? Oh, uh, that there must be on the other side of the kids' heads. Now I know what that looks like, and and I think yeah. that you know it would help me. So. Great having you both here. It's it's phenomenal work, and obviously three D printing in this realm is is just a huge breakthrough. And and how this can really work for for not only the children but for the parents as well. Thank you both for coming in, and obviously have a have Thank a very us. good time at TEDx Ben. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Patty. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.